Good morning, everybody. And uh, welcome to those of you who are watching online as well. We are in our fifth week of a series called The Mission. It's primarily in Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus sends out the disciples on a mission. And in this series, we explore our mission as followers of Jesus. And um, we're defining the mission in this way. There would be many ways of, of looking at it. But if I could have the next slide. Our mission is to declare with words and demonstrate with works the good news of God's grace in Christ in our everyday lives, everywhere that we go, to by the way that we live and by the words that we say and with really declarations of what that good news, that gospel is, uh, to spread uh, the, the message of God's grace all around. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, uh, and it's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew is, it's about three quarters of the way into your Bible. You can grab one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you uh, to follow along, and we're using the New International Version if you're using a phone or tablet device. Um, Now while you're turning in your Bibles, as we do every week, we remind you that understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery. Understanding our part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery. God doesn't want us to be in a fog about that. There's mystery involved, but he doesn't want us to be in a fog about that. He he wants us to understand we have a part in his story and what his story is all about. So join me in praying the prayer on the screen as we seek uh, God to teach us, seek after God to teach us from his word. Let's pray together. Empty us, Father of all that prevents us from hearing what you want us to hear. Empty us of our preconceptions, our preoccupations, and our prejudices. Empty us that we might be filled with your spirit and your word. Empty us that we might be filled for ministry and mission. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And Father, I bring uh, before you um, our veterans, uh, not only here, but all over our country. We thank you for them on this weekend where we remember our veterans, um, or say our thanks to them. And Father, I pray that you would bless them throughout um, this weekend. And Father, I also pray for the conflicts that are happening all around the world. We especially think of the conflict in Israel and the conflict in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine and Israel. We pray for uh, you to guide world leaders and bring wisdom and bring justice in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in uh, Matthew chapter 10, things are about to get really dark. I mean, really, really dark. And uh, it's going to be that way uh, for this week, next week, and the week after that. In fact, this is like just the first part of a three-part sermon on uh, the next, this passage and the next two passages. Jesus, uh, if you think back to what's happened so far in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to go on a short-term mission and they're going to do what he's been doing. They're going to preach the good news of the kingdom. They are going to heal. They're going to cast out demons. They're going to raise the dead. And he tells them they're going to cleanse people from leprosy. In other words, they're going to be doing good. They're going to be doing 
good things. And you would think that just about everybody, you know, would welcome people doing that kind of thing coming into their town, that it would just be this, this wonderful, wonderful thing. But look at what it says in verse 14, which is a transition statement into what's going to be read today and for the next couple of weeks as well. So verse 14, Jesus says, after he says, you're going to go into towns, you're going to look for people that welcome you. And then he says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that town, that home or town, and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for, the Sod- for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Okay, so this is a transition into a much darker part of his instructions where Jesus is going to elaborate on what that rejection might look like. And he's going to offer, he's going to equip them, and he's going to offer some, um, some encouragement in the midst of rejection and worse that disciples are going to face, followers of Jesus are going to face. So I want to stop and just ask a question. I want you to think about this question. Why would people reject them? Why would people reject them? Now, our natural reaction, as we're reading the Gospels, for example, and people reject them, our natural reaction is to think, well, there's, there's a lot of bad people out there, and they're going to do anything they can to stop the Gospel from being spread. Now, it's true. There are a lot of bad people out there. It depends what you're talking about. We're all bad, but there's these extra bad people that are out there, right? And, um, and, but if you really think about it, most people who are going to stand up against disciples, and even to today stand up against disciples, they don't think of themselves as bad guys going after the good guys. They think of themselves as the good guys. And they think of the followers of Jesus when they stand against them as the bad guys. They think that the disciples, what they're doing, isn't ultimately good. It might seem good on the surface, but they believe that what they're doing is not a good thing. So we're going to spend this week and the next couple of weeks talking about how to live on mission for God when some people think we're the bad guys. Um, So if you look at the title on the sermon application guide, Being the Bad Guys, part one um, today. So follow along in your Bibles as our, uh, one of our mission partners reads the text to us. Matthew 10, 16 through 23. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. 
Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. All right, we're, we're not going to look at it, what is being said there in detail. You'll go into some of that in the Sermon Application Guide study for your small group. Um, but we will circle back to some of the details over the next couple of weeks. Um, today we're kind of stepping back and, and looking at this from maybe 10,000 feet and this, this larger question about being the bad guys. So I want you to turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> and in Matthew chapter 5, of course, Jesus... Uh, kicks off the Sermon on the Mount, and it runs from chapter 5, 6, and 7, and it starts out with the Beatitudes. And if you were reading the Beatitudes for the very first time, it would be interesting to sit with someone who's reading it for the very first time, uh, and, and they're really concentrating on what it's saying. It would hit you at a certain point, the end of the Beatitudes would be probably be very, very jarring, because... Um, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, people who mourn, the meek, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people who are compassionate, and the pure in heart. Then in verse 10, it's kind of like he drops a little bomb, and he says, this is the last of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're used to kind of hearing that, but I think that that would come kind of as a surprise, and probably to the original audience when Jesus is giving the sermon, they probably would have gone persecuted. And then he elaborates. He leaves the kind of the cadence of the Beatitudes, and he elaborates. He doesn't elaborate on any of the other Beatitudes. He elaborates on that last one, kind of really drives it home. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me, okay, it's not just because you're being a jerk, it's because you follow me, all right? Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. So he says, yeah, you should actually rejoice, because, well, there's gonna be great reward for you, and because you're in really good company, you're in the company of the prophets. So what comes next, right after talking about them, people who are carrying forth his values, living by the values of the kingdom, what comes next? They're gonna be persecuted, and then the very next thing he says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, you are the light of the world. And he draws that all to a close in verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So he says, you are going to be persecuted for following me. You're going to live what, from his perspective, God's perspective, is an exemplary life. You're going to live by these values. And then people are going to persecute you for that. And you're going to be on mission for me. You're going to be salt to the earth, you're going to be salt of the earth, and you're going to be a light to the world, and some people are actually going to turn to God 
because of the way that you're living, and they're going to glorify God. Do you, do you see how weird this might sound to the hearers and to the disciples? Now, turn back to Matthew chapter 10, because it's basically the same thing, but the other way around. He calls 12 apostles from the disciples, and he tells them that they're going to go on a short-term mission where they're going to do what he's been doing. And a couple of weeks ago, we stopped and said, what a shock it would be for them to hear for the very first time that they are going to go on a mission, and he's not going with them, and they're going to do things like raise the dead. And uh, we saw the, the depiction of it in The Chosen, and I think it's very well depicted in the sense of what they would be like, just very, very anxious about it. But then he ups the ante, and we saw that last week, the difficulty of what they're going to be doing. Because he says, leave all your provisions behind, depend on others to provide for your needs. And then he warns them that some people aren't going to welcome them. We read that a few moments ago. And they have to be going, wait, what? <laughs> We're going to be healing people and they're not going to welcome us? We're going to be healing people, offering a message of good news and hope, and some people aren't going to welcome us? Right. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely that's the case, as he goes on to say. Now imagine how they respond to what they are just, what we saw read, what Jesus says. He says, you're going out among wolves. You will be arrested. You will be flogged. Your own children will turn you into authorities to have you killed. So this is getting really crazy and dangerous and super depressing, <laughs> this whole idea of mission. It's like Jesus is saying, see that line of soldiers, they're pointing their weapons at you to kill you because of me. Lay your weapons down and walk right into their fire and die. And by the way, as you get closer, you're going to notice that some of those people, oh, look, there's my older brother pointing his gun at me. Oh, there's my 17-year-old daughter. It's depressing. It really is. It's depressing. Let us sink in for a moment. All right. We'll come kind of back to that in a few moments. But I want to do a little analysis of what's going on here. Um, so we'll take a little break from the carnage uh, for a few moments. The, the analysis is kind of necessary because none of this happens to them when they go out. None of this really dark stuff happens to them when they go on the short-term mission trip. And the readers of Matthew know that. Uh, we, we know that. No, none of this happens, um, especially the death and betrayal parts of this. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus saying you're going to face this? Uh, in other words, why the warning if, <clears throat> if none of this is actually going to happen? There's four possibilities. So we're analyzing here for a few moments but we'll stop and get some lessons along the way. So one of the possibilities is Jesus is just speaking figuratively. It's not really a possibility because this actually does happen and is even happening today all around the world. So there's no reason to speak figuratively about something that actually winds up happening, not on this trip, but in the future and actually is happening today. The second possibility is at some point, Jesus stopped the conversation and said, by the way, none of this is going to happen, but Matthew didn't record it. And that could very well be. They, uh, the gospel writers leave out all kinds of details and the stories for their purposes of what they're trying to get across. 
So in the streaming series, The Chosen, that's exactly how they interpret it. That's their analysis of this passage. Jesus actually stops and says, this isn't going to happen to you on this trip. Now, I wanna show you the scene in The Chosen because I, I, again, I just think it's, it's like a visual commentary. And I, I want you to notice again how what's happening to the disciples as they're hearing this so that maybe we can hear it as they would have heard it, okay? And so um, they are gonna move from anxiety over what's gonna happen to close to total despair over what's gonna happen, all right? So we'll kind of go back to what happened, um, talked about two weeks ago, a little bit, and then what we covered last week, and then get to what he talks about now. Let's, let's watch. With respect, Rabbi, we've only just begun as students. We're not nearly qualified enough. Why would you need us for this work? He doesn't need us. He wants us. Thank you, Zeeb. Very good. John, if I needed religious leaders or qualified students for my ministry, I wouldn't have chosen... <laughs> well, you'll get the point. Can we get back to the part about healing the sick for one second? You will take nothing for your journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money. Not even Salome's food. Wear sandals and do not bring an extra tunic. We can't even bring a change of clothes? Even the wandering cynic philosophers carry a second tunic. Yes, they do. And I'd like to distinguish you from the cynics. They also carry beggar's bags for people to put gold and silver coins into. And you will not do that. You received without paying. Now give without pay. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And if anyone should not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet as you leave that house or town. Do not waste your time. You said if anyone will not listen to our words. What words exactly? What are we supposed to teach? Anything you've ever heard from me. I've only ever heard the one sermon. You heard the best one anyway. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're all so good. Uh -huh. That message was not just for the thousands that were there. It was for all who will hear it from now until the end of the age. How will they know it, you ask? Good question, thanks for asking. You will tell them. And the places you will go are places I will soon go. So you are preparing the way for my arrival and helping ensure that more people are ready to hear the good news. The miracles you'll perform on God's authority will prove my ministry. Suppose we hit a bad streak and several towns in a row reject us, maybe for days. How are we to eat? What if it gets bad? Like, like it has with John. Listen carefully, all of you. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So, you're saying we could die? 
there will come a time when this will become far more difficult. When persecution is an ever-present part of your ministry. When that time comes, you will follow in my footsteps and you will know what it actually means to give up your life. about that. In the meantime, this journey will not come to that. All right, so that's one way of saying what might have, might have happened. Uh, but I just this time I was watching, I'm like, how miserable would it be that you got picked to be part of this group <laughs> at this point? Um, so why, why the warning if it didn't happen that way? Remember, Jesus doesn't say it's not going to happen this time. Um, another reason might be is that Jesus just leaves it up in the air and makes them think that it might happen. And it's a way of testing their faith, and it's quite possible that he did that. Uh, a final reason is that these are a collection of saints, Matthew chapter 10. One of the things that we know about Matthew is that he has structured Jesus' sayings into five different distinct portions of his gospel. Things that are spread out in the other gospels are brought together under subject headings. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is how he arranged his gospel. I lean in that direction. Um, that's where I think it is. Jesus is... Uh, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the new Moses, so the five teachings comparable to the five books of Moses. And, and the reason I think this is because the Gospels do this hundreds of times, hundreds of times. And, um, but really, anything but this one are pretty much uh, options that you can, you can go for and, and make sense. Um, so the main thing is this. What Jesus is talking about here, definitely for all the readers of Matthew, we know it doesn't happen as you read on the story. None of that happens, so he has to be talking about the future. He has to be talking about future followers. He has to be talking about what the disciples are going to face in their lives. He has to be talking about what some disciples throughout the centuries are going to face, that following Jesus is not just this bed of roses. So how do we stay focused on mission when some people hate us? That's what we're going to especially cover the next couple of weeks. But why are today, just in the remaining moments, why are Christians sometimes hated for being Christians? Why would that be? Uh, It's not going to be a comprehensive answer, uh, but let me give you three, three reasons And the first two, I'm indebted to uh, the late Tim Keller for this. So one reason is that if you take Jesus seriously, he makes claims that push people to the extremes, just naturally push people to the extremes. So he makes claims that if you take him seriously, you're going to reorient your entire life around what he teaches. Uh, He doesn't talk about neutrality. It's not like, 
oh, you can believe this stuff and just keep living your life as you've been living it and be okay with God. It's, it just doesn't work that way. It literally doesn't work that way. So it pushes people to an extreme of being willing to even go to their death. That's what I mean by an extreme. And orienting their whole life around Jesus' teaching. But for some other people, they take what he says seriously and they have different convictions. What he says is so outrageous that they have to stop him at all costs. It's part of the reason why, why when Christians identify with Jesus, it can, you know, they can be hated by some people. Um, there was a short bit of time in recent history in America where the dominant virtue, at least the stated dominant virtue, was tolerance. Let's live and let live. You do you, I'll do me, and let's, let's go on our merry ways. Um, of course, even when it was the stated virtue, it wasn't true because you didn't tolerate people who uh, said, made exclusive claims, all right? So if you were Muslim or Orthodox in your Judaism or a certain kind of Christian and you made claims about Jesus, that was not tolerated. So it was never really, but the state of virtue was tolerance. We live in a different day today, and a lot of people don't even realize that anymore because people still talk a little bit about tolerance, but it's not the dominant virtue. Very few people today are arguing for tolerance anymore. There, um, there are some who still talk about it, but they're not the primary influencers. They're, every once in a while it goes, hey, let's remember tolerance, but nobody's really listening to them or hardly anybody's listening to them. So we're back to how it was the rest of history in most of the places in the world. Um, and it means that it's more acceptable to show very little tolerance in, in our culture right now. Very acceptable to show very little tolerance for people who are making exclusive claims that clash with your exclusive claims. If you've listened to uh, the podcast series, about seven episodes, I think, it's called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. Uh, and it kind of talks about how she went on Twitter and made a statement, something along the lines that only biological women are women, period. You know, um, you can talk about trans women, she was okay with that, but if you're gonna say a person is a woman, it has to be a biological, and she had her reasons for doing this. She, had, she talks about it in there in the interview. And I thought, you know, I was, for a while I was like, well, this is what happens when you go on Twitter and make comments like this. It's just not a good place, you know? It's just, it's just crazy. And the battle is all happening on Twitter, right? No, <laughs> it's spread way beyond Twitter. And so even some of the biggest fan groups of Harry Potter and Rowling basically canceled her. Uh, some, most of the major actors canceled her. This went way beyond, way beyond Twitter. And it reflected how it is now that it is acceptable now not to be tolerant, but to make your exclusive claims and not be, not be accepting of other people's exclusive claims if they clash with yours. And that's the point that I'm making right here. So in the time in the New Testament until sometime in the, to the fourth century, there were these breakouts of state-sponsored persecution of Christians. It wasn't constant, it wasn't in all places, but a lot of people died, a lot of people were imprisoned for believing in Jesus. 
So what kind of claims did Jesus make that got his followers into trouble? What were some of the exclusive claims? Um, we could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about these, but let's just look at three real quickly. Jesus claimed that he would someday judge the world. And every person on earth, whoever lived, he's going to judge them. And their fate would be determined by whether or not, in his words, he knew them. And there were some criteria that showed that he would know them. He said that he was the way to God, he was the truth, and he himself was the life. And he made it very clear that the other ways led to destruction. In other words, he is the way, the only way to God. And then, of course, there's the claim that he existed in eternity past and was God himself in the flesh. So if you believe he was delusional or he was lying and that by deluding others, he's taking them in a dangerous direction, which means taking them away from the direction that you think people should be going, then you're very committed to standing against him and his followers. You're going to stand against them. He's pushing you to an extreme. Either you're going to follow him and define your life and everything you do by his words, or if you take him really seriously and you have another perspective, you're going to denounce him and warn people about him and about his followers who are deluded and are evil. They are the bad guys. The bad guys. Of course, not everyone has this response. There's still a lot of live and let live people, kind of, in our in our world. And a lot of people simply dismiss his claims like, I'm not even sure he existed. So you get people who just kind of like, eh. you got a lot of people who say, I am a follower of Jesus, but they don't reorient. They just go on with their lives. They talk about some time when maybe they were or they prayed some prayer or something like that, but they really haven't taken him very seriously. It's why a lot of people being, uh, being confronted with a passage like this, as you're being confronted today because we preach through the Bible, are like, this is a head-scratcher for you. Um, and we're going to spend three weeks in it because you, you just haven't heard this before. Um, so, and it may sound extreme to you, but it is actually what Jesus taught. He pushed people to extremes. Why are Christians sometimes hated just for being Christians? First, if you take Jesus seriously, he makes claims that push many to extremes. Second, if you pay attention to what Jesus says, you'll see that what he says about you and me, it sounds really offensive. <laughs> it really does. Tim Keller uh, puts it this way. Every other founder of religion comes and says, here's what you have to do in order to be saved. Here's what you have to do in order to connect with God. Jesus says, you can't do it. You're awful. You're terrible. You're a sinner. You're weak. You have nothing with which to merit salvation. I have to do it all for you. I'm not a teacher. Come to tell you how to, be, how to save yourself. I'm a savior. Come to save you. That's basic 101 Christianity. Basic as it can be. If you take Jesus seriously, what he says is, is as basic as it can be. Interesting story that drives this home. So 
In the 1700s, there was a very famous preacher, traveling preacher from, um, from England who would travel this country especially and was, by most historians' estimations, m- more well-known and popular in his day than Billy Graham would be in his heyday. And this preacher's name was George Whitfield. One of his biggest fans was um, Benjamin Franklin. So there was a British aristocrat named Lady Huntington, or Huntingdon, who was converted by his preaching and started inviting her friends to come and hear Whitfield preach. Most of her friends didn't come. One wrote her a letter, the Duchess of Buckingham wrote her a letter explaining why she was not gonna come. And this is what the letter said. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the, gra- on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. <laughs> it's like, yeah, she was hearing the actual gospel, wasn't she? And she didn't like it. You could be anti-aristocratic, okay, for her, you know, we're above all you and me, wretches. Um, you could be anti-aristocratic. You could say people should not be judged by their breeding. They should all be judged by their merit. And Jesus says, you have no merit before me. Um, you can only receive God's unmerited favor. That's what grace is. It's not just some God is nice. It's unmerited favor. Years ago, there was a book published uh, that, that I read, and uh, it, it, it said we should stop calling people who are not Christians, we should stop calling them lost. We should stop saying that they're lost. It can be very offensive to them, and maybe they won't listen to the gospel. And it suggested maybe we should call them not yet Christians. Um, and so I resonated with their point, you know, the gospel is offensive enough, if you haven't gotten that already. Uh, let's not add to the offense, but the argument had some gaping holes. Um, first of all, saying that someone is lost is pretty tame compared to other things Jesus said. So it's just going to be a matter of time, right? It's going to be a matter of time before they hear the other things that Jesus said. And, um, you know, so avoiding it might... I mean, Jesus actually used the term lost, too, so it's, you know, avoiding it can be, you know, a pro- problematic eventually anyway. So, um, little aside here. Because of that, there's kind of two extremes people come at it with. Um, so, w- one extreme is people say, no, 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 but let's, let's avoid the terminology that's going to cause a problem. And it put it off as long as possible. Let's let them fall in love with Jesus, and then they can hear the hard stuff from Jesus. The problem is there's almost always someone in the room who needs, who they will define as someone who cannot hear those words and might turn away from God. There's always someone in the room. And so what happens is in a room, it's never spoken. It's just never spoken. The tough stuff that Jesus said. They never get around to it. So that's one extreme. Even if they believe it. They don't want to offend the person unnecessarily, so they never get around to the tough stuff. The other extreme is, oh, since Jesus said tough tough stuff, let me just throw it in people's faces. You know, kind of fire and brimstone type preaching. Problem with that is, if you're throwing it in people's faces without the nuances and without explaining things like, well, we're all lost, and 
we're all wretches and we're all needing grace. And I'm not better than you because I follow Jesus. Uh, I'm just found. I'm just found. And I'm trying to point you to the way to the one who, who loves you and cares for you so that you can come with your brokenness like my broken. So in other words, the two extremes are one you just never talk about. And the other extreme is you just get really mean with it. And you see that everywhere. That's not very Christ-like. It's not very biblical. It's not how the disciples walked into places that were not religious centers and spoke to people who did not have biblical backgrounds. They explained things. They, they said it right away, some of the tough stuff, but they explained themselves and they explained the concepts. And you can see that throughout the whole book of Acts. Okay, so that's a little aside. What was I talking about? <laughs> Gaping holes, not calling people uh, lost. Um, Jesus himself says that humanity is lost without him. And he says it quite publicly. And thirdly, I can't imagine that not yet Christian isn't going to be even more offensive. It's like, it's like someone, it's someone who's a follower of Islam coming to me and saying, oh, you're just not yet Muslim. I don't think I'm going to become Muslim. <laughs> you know, so, you know, that's a little bit presumptuous for you to say that. It's pretty bit much presumptuous for us to call someone not yet Christian. So... I love the heart behind it, just not sure it's a, it's a good way to deal with it. So um, why are Christians sometimes hated just for being Christians? First, if you take Jesus seriously, he makes claims that push many to extremes. Second, if you pay attention to what Jesus says, it can be very offensive, depending on how you listen to it and how you hear it. And third, what Jesus says and calls people to is considered to be evil, by many. Just evil, bad, bad stuff. And this was true in Jesus' day, it was true in the early church, it was true in every era since then, it's true all over the world, even today, it's increasingly the case in our time and space that we live. That's where we're going to go the next couple of weeks. But I just want to show you something before we move into our time of response. Um, I just want to show you one thing. So, uh, this takes us back to Matthew chapter 5 uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that people will persecute you because you follow him. And Jesus says you will be salt and light and people will come to know me because they'll see you and they'll glorify God in heaven. Um, look at verse 17, chapter 10. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Now, look at the screen up here. Uh, one of the instances where Jesus gives the Great Commission. It's in Acts 1.8, before he ascends into heaven. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, now I'm going to put the Matthew passage up here. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Have you ever read this one and included this in there? 
In other words, we think of this as, you know, missionary work, going all over the world, uh, learning to blend into a new society, living like them, loving them, pointing them towards Christ. But it includes being brought before governors and kings, not because they're so curious and they're like, oh, we want to hear about Jesus, but because they just flogged you. (laughs) And they're trying you, and they're going to execute you or imprison you. And he says, even then, Part of the whole purpose of what you're doing is you're going to be on mission for me. You're going to be my witnesses. Gives a whole broader range of meaning of what our mission is. Part of our mission is to bring a message of God's grace and love, the gospel, the good news of the gospel, to people, some of whom will hate us and think we're the bad guys, but we're still on mission, pointing to Jesus. And that's a message that especially American Christians right now need to hear and be reminded of. And we'll do that over the next couple of weeks. I encourage you to take um, the bread and the cup as we move into our time of uh, response. Here we remember what Jesus did for us. Uh, We learn a lot about God as we celebrate communion together. But we also learn a lot about our need. Because to save us, it wasn't Jesus came and said, if you could just tweak your lives, (laughs) some of you, just tweak your lives a little bit, it'd be okay. No. (laughs) This is what it took. His body had to be broken for you. He became The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lamb meaning sacrifice. That's what we remember. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread or drink this cup and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your son that even while we were still sinners, he died for us. We didn't earn it. We can't earn it. It's grace. We thank you for your grace. I pray for anyone here today who has not received your grace, who's still trying to prove themselves to you, in one way or another, who doesn't understand what it means to live in your grace, under your love, motivated by that, driven by that. So much so that we would be willing to reorient our lives around you and your teachings and your kingdom. I pray that they would receive that now by turning to you and trusting you, by repenting and believing. Father, help all of us to live in this truth and in this reality and that our witness might go forth to the end, to the ends of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.